Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Art attack 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 attack. I'm joined in the studio by Ty Snaith, who fortnightly comes into chat about exhibitions that are on at galleries across Melbourne, often joined by Ace Wag staff, but not this fortnight. Ty, good morning. Good morning, Richard. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you back. Yeah, how good is autumn? It is one of my <laughs> favourite times of year, Me I have too. to say. Even the days when it gets warmer, like 26 or something, oh. because it starts off with such crisp, cool. beautiful yeah. mornings. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love it. It just awakens something in me. I'm such a winter person and autumn's like, it's coming, the cold. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely so the same. I am, I am well and truly awake and uh, have been to see an excellent show that the timing was also perfect. It just opened last night. Um, it is a show of paintings, nice and clean and simple. Uh, it's on at Sophie Gannon... Gallery, which is in Richmond, um, super easy to get to, and it's by a very accomplished Melbourne painter, Emily Ferretti, and the show's called Bent Elbow. Terrific title, I must start with. I'm really into the title. I love anything that's sort of <clears throat> got a bit of, I don't know, it sounds sort of funny to me, but then I guess it's not really funny. It's just the description of the angle of a body part, but Bent Elbow, such a good title. Something about the way it rolls off the tongue. There's also something about it that implies the physical labour of painting. And that's exactly right, Richard. So Emily talks about, um, well, in the, there's a great essay that, that um, you, can, you can get sent to you or you could probably find it online that's written by Tiani Marcus, who's an um, arts writer. And, yeah, she sort of describes how the, the angle, Emily realised that when she drew big curves, her arm was at a certain, her, her elbow was always at this certain angle and I think it sort of describes the yeah the physicality of Emily's paintings as well they're almost like she's an athlete or something because they're massive and they're very uh they're very organic when you look at them they're, they're curves they're made from a lot of different curves they're not really you wouldn't say they're straight lines really at all there's a few but it's a very curvy kind of painting and organic but Emily is um an amazing master of the of treading the balance between abstraction and figuration. So when you look at these paintings, you can see trees, right? Can you see trees, Richard? I certainly can. Yeah. So there's no there's no sort of mystery there. It's definitely they're tree-esque or tree-ish. But when you really spend some time with these works, they're more than that. And there's something about almost like what's on the inside of trees or what makes up trees. And when you start to look at kind of molecular science and the way that nature is put together and responds to each other and, and to us, we're all made of these cells, particles, um, vibrations. And I really feel with these works, Emily's tapped into something of the almost the spiritual or psychological dimension of the tree. So 
yeah, rather than what a tree looks like or the casing or the outside of the tree, it's like what's going on inside on a cellular level of the and trees. And also really playing with perspective as well. So showing us a tree from above from yeah, or a there's different one, perspective. Or there's one called a falling tree, which is the tree falling in stages, which is quite a beautiful work. And it almost has this central sort of circle on each of the falling stages of the tree. It's, it's almost kind of violent or something, that one. Um, but, yeah... It, it, she works from found imagery, so she sort of famously has this collection of really beautiful source um, images that she's collected for years and years. And uh, once she showed them, which was one of my favourite shows of Emily's, where she just showed all the, the 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 sort of source images she collected. But she she doesn't paint from her own eyes; she sort of paints from someone else's perspective, if that makes sense. So it's, it is interesting how that's almost um, distilled once already, abstracted once through the lens of someone else's photograph, and then her own. Uh, but yeah, these it's it's like she's really gone now into the inside or the the psychological sphere um, of this abstraction. But the thing is, the th- the thing with this show is that they're all trees except for these two paintings in the show that are actually my two favourite paintings. Not to say I don't like the trees, but the tree paintings are all quite large. They're all around 180 times uh, 180 by 130 centimetres, so quite big, nearly two metres squared. But then there's these two paintings that are smaller, that are more around sort of 70 squared or, you know, a bit smaller. And one's called workbench and one's called cutting wood. So they're almost like, when you start to think of it, they're like what happens to the tree next. And these are my two favourite pieces in the show. They're a slightly different palette. So the tree paintings are all really bright um, yellows, greens, like sky blues, almost like the colour that light has in nature. So when you see light refracted off um, chloroform, off, off leaves, it's got this real vibrance. Whereas these two other paintings that I love have a slightly more human palette, like they're a bit muddy, more muddied. So... There are dark, there are darker blues in it. There's also some little symbols like hammers have started to come in, which I love as a symbol, a recurring motif in a painting. And the hammers, in particularly in workbench, which is my favourite work in the show, um, they've they've got such an action to them. You can almost hear them. So it's almost like you can hear the bang coming it, off the hammer. It's like comic. It's almost a comic yeah. book element to the to the work. Yeah, the the. But still, As so you see in a comic book, it's yeah, kind of like you you see action. the 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 lines of movement. But still, so sophisticated, so still like makes up this quite beautiful. You could see this in any styled interior, for example. But then, yeah, almost funny in the action, or almost violent, but in quite a beautiful way. And the other one, um, cutting wood, which you know when you think about it, it's what happens to the tree next. You can you can sort of feel the the saw, but also all the tiny little buzzes coming off the saw. Like it's quite a intensely tight image. And the thing I love about Emily's painting, particularly this body of work, is that on first impression it looks loose and it looks really playful and sort of like, yeah, like you say, comic booky, um, like really loose, like, you know, someone's done it quickly. But then when you spend time with it, you realise that every single mark is so highly considered. Like Emily spends a lot of time with these works and none of it is just happenstance. None of it is sort of just, oh, 
I'll put that there. You can tell that she spent a long time thinking about that little jagged line and how it fits in. So it's almost like carpentry in a way in that, you know, you have to be so precise to make a cabinet because if you get one millimetre wrong, that thing doesn't work. And you've also got to incorporate the grain of the wood and, yeah. the and again, if you cut at the wrong piece, the wrong angle chunks might splinter off, for example. So, again, that's kind of perhaps referenced there yeah. as well. The And also the dynamism of a buzzsaw. Yeah. The, the colours, as you mentioned earlier, very yep. different to the other work. So umbers and, and reds and yellows yeah. and browns. Beautiful palette and almost that sort of burnt mushroomy taupe colour with, with dark blue is one of my favourite combos. But, yeah, the thing that really gets me about this body of work is that combination of tightness and control that Emily is so good at, but also combined with these new motifs of almost like they're almost intestinal. Like I kept thinking of um, intestines or gizzards or sort of cells, you know, and as you go into the gallery um, just in front of the – or behind the desk, there's a couple of little really quick drawings – well, they they may not be quick, but um, simple drawings that are just black on white that are also in the show that are framed and they give you a real sense of the beginnings of these shapes. So – they're, they're like lumpy branch type things, but also you could imagine them as someone's being, you know, when someone, what, are they, what do you call it when you pull all someone's intestines out? Disemboweled. Disemboweled. They're disemboweled paintings that you can see the beginnings of it. And they've got that real brain-like, intestine-like gizzard thing going on. And there's something about that that just, I don't know, it triggers something very primal in me. And I think, I think Emily's work has a great way of doing that. It's accessible because it's so... Um, you know, basic in some ways, but then as an artist you can see all the work that's gone into to a- achieving that simplicity. Which is lovely. Mm. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think so many people find art practice fascinating because mm. they want to learn about process, about what informs work, the ideas being explored, not just the finished product. Yeah, and how beautiful is it for something that the basic thing that informs this work is trees. Like that, she's just such a beautiful, honest artist. And yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Emily and her work. So I highly recommend going. If you have money, I highly recommend buying one of these works because Emily is not going away in a hurry. So, so the exhibition is called Bent Elbow by Emily Ferretti and showing at Sophie Gannon Gallery. You can find out more info at sophiegannongallery.com.au. And Ty, you said the, ex- the gallery was located in Richmond. It's in Richmond. Sorry, I've forgotten the name of the street, but ah, it's just off Church Street. To Albert Street there in Richmond, and yep. it's showing until the 23rd of April. Yeah, highly recommend. Go. If you're a young painter, go. See how a, how a really good painter um, works. So the website again, sophiegannongallery.com.au. Ty, any other exhibitions you wanted to briefly ah, kind of plug or talk about? When you put that on me like that, yes, probably. I mean, one thing that is on the front of my mind is that Blindside sadly had their um, funding from Creative Victoria cut. This is a this is a disaster because Blindside is one of our oldest artist-run spaces in Melbourne. So I know that they are doing a campaign um, to try and get some money. If anyone out there has some of that stuff lying around in bundles that you don't know what to do with, chuck it at Blindside because we really don't want to lose that space in the Nicholas Building. Um, that's something that just came to a head in the last couple of days, so that's on my mind. But otherwise, uh, you know, yes, and I of course I can't think off the top of my head what else is on but there are other shows there's a million other shows but I'm going to see theatre tonight so oh what are you seeing I'm going to the thing at the MTC mm. admissions <laughs> yes that one yeah <laughs> 
directed by Gary Abrahams. It's meant to be good, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so got to uh, switch into theatre mode. Okay. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Blindside's fundraiser. Yep. They're doing that fundraiser through the Australian Cultural Fund. Oh, so um, just Google Australian Cultural Fund Blindside uh, and you'll find uh, the, the details. Their target is 25 grand so far. They've raised almost uh, four and a half grand. So uh, mm. they've got a way to go, but 84 days remaining in the campaign. So do donate if you can. Uh, go to, as I said, the Australian Cultural Fund. Just Google Australian Cultural Fund Blindside and you'll find details of their fundraiser there. Yeah, such an important space. Like so many people get their start there. Not just artists, but curators. They've, they've been quite well known for having this curatorial program that um, encourages young curators and their first ideas. And with Without that type of um, ecosystem, Richard, we don't end up with old curators and then you don't end up with interesting shows at the big institutions. So start at the at the beginning and, and help those places. Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Barney Duncan is a comedian from Aotearoa, New Zealand, who's here in Melbourne for, unsurprisingly, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with a show called Bunny on at the Tower in the Malthouse Theatre until this Sunday. Barney is a comedian whose career I've been following with interest for quite a few years now. Um, one of the reasons that I'm intrigued by your work, Barney, is I never know what to expect because sometimes you will be playing a character, sometimes you'll be doing something very intimate, sometimes you're collaborating with other comedians. Uh, so, yeah, there's, it's, you seem to be a hard person to pin down. That's good. I'm glad you said that. I was, I was speaking to someone about it last night, actually. Um, yeah, you've, it's just a thing where you've got to keep... Um, I've got to keep learning new stuff about what I'm doing. And I don't, I don't just want to be a good... Ca- like, I've done character comedy. I've done a lot of comedy using turntables. I kind of explored... You know, you get like, okay, I really know how to do silent physical slapstick mime or whatever but I don't want to sit in that pond for a long time because then there's the there's a stagnation or something like that I just have to you know you got to keep you got to keep uh challenge it sounds like a cliche but it, it is good to keep challenging yourself what in whatever your art form is and for me yeah bunny is, is kind of like the first time I've just been Barney without a character or a a shtick to kind of hide behind. I think tap head was pretty close, but I still had a giant tap on my head. (laughs) Is there a risk, though, if you are constantly shifting gears with your comedy, that it makes you harder to produce, to promote, to market, because you can't be defined, you can't be pinned down, unlike somebody going, oh, he's a stand-up comedian, you know what you're going to get year after year, even though the show will be different in some way. You are constantly changing gears, changing uh, styles, which I would imagine for audiences could be confusing sometimes because they're like, well, we don't know what to expect, so maybe we'll stay away. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Or the the people, um, you know, come expecting... Come because they've seen... uh, Say, for example, I've seen Tr- Trigvi and I do the, our office slapstick show, Different Party, and they're expecting an hour of absurd r- running into walls and f- playing with newspaper or whatever. And I'm 
and I'm standing in a tap talking. I don't. Yeah, there is that. Like oh, I expected this. I expected a banana, and I got a passion fruit. Uh, you know that that and 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 reviewers often um, tr- uh, uh, feel let down in that way as well. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe I just. Uh, Maybe I maybe I'm just destined to be known to be the comedy chameleon. I'm not sure. It's kind of cool to be to be like a. I was trying to write a new joke about it. Like I'm not a comedy moth. Stop trying to pin me down. Now, Bunny is not only a show in which you are being Barney on stage. It's a very personal show on a number of levels. Now, I'm not sure how much you want to talk about and how much you want to give away in terms of the core focus of the show. I think we can we can we can go there. Okay. Yeah. It's the second show I've seen in the festival, which is talking directly about grief and the loss of a parent. Uh, in this instance, the loss of your mum only about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people would go, and you've turned that into a comedy show? Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I just moved. I was living in Melbourne for like seven years and then we had a kid and the and the pandemic got a bit too much and, and mum was sick. So a number of th- things uh, coincided for us to move back to New Zealand and... And I was speaking with Kirsty, who who runs the New Zealand Comedy Festival, and I'd sort of said, "Yeah, put uh, put put me down for a slot." I, I'd had an idea in my mind that I'd ha- I'd make a new show called Bunny, but that I wanted to explore nightclubs uh, as a setting and do a lot of dancing. I wanted to do like an endurance dance comedy show. It was the initial idea, but then Mum got really sick, and I kind of forgot about comedy. And and then I got a call from her going, hey, I, I heard your mum's ill, look, totally fine to pull out. And I went, ah, oh, I, 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 let me think about it. And then I forgot about it again. And then then when mum passed, I, I had three weeks until the show opened. And I went, oh, shit, I don't know if this... And my brother actually, my older brother actually said, look... A, mum would be really disappointed if she knew you'd pulled the show because of her. And B, just go to your happy place. Your happy place is making shows, so just go there now. And it was just, you know, I, I, I kind of, maybe it was nice to get sort of fam- familial permission to, to, to do that because there are sort of, I talk about this a little bit in the show, there are societal expectations of grieving and perhaps making a comedy show isn't one of them, but it was um, it was a f- totally wonderful thing to do. I felt like uh, it, it, the show came out really easily, and I did cry kind of most of the time. Not all of it, like in the at some point during each day, I'd have a little weep, but I'd also laugh heaps, and um, I felt like I was. For the first time, I was able to use... Because if I was like an acoustic guitar player, uh, it would be fine for me to, you know, sit up at night and smoke some cigarettes and write a song about my mum, and that would be a nice... an acceptable way of of using my art to deal with something sad. But if you're an absurd, surreal, physical comedian, then there isn't an example of that. But it, it actually did the job. My art was cathartic and helpful and got me through a hard time. Some people listening might immediately think, okay, this is a show made 
by Barney for Barney rather than made by Barney for an audience. One of the things that struck me as fascinating watching the show is that, yes, there is a sense of your own personal grief running through the show, but this is not a dark, bleak show in which, like some comedy shows in which you end up crying partway through or, or towards the end of the show, there's an enormous sense of of joy and hope and it's a very vibrant show, helped by by music, by dance, and by some very clever visual gags as well. Yeah, it's definitely not a a maudlin. Um, I don't want any so- like you poor. Th- there's no sort of poor thing going on, and it's not self indulgent either. That's the other thing. Oh, that that's me. that's good. Yeah, it's 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 just. I mainly wanted to ask the question. Is it is it okay to do this while I'm grieving? What is the correct way of grieving? This is some of the strange stuff that happens, because there are really odd things that your brain does when you're going through a little bit of a sad time, surprising things, and it's kind of like those are the moments that I choose to talk about rather than sad things, just kind of weird things, um, and also yeah, and also how. Throughout it all, I was just really wanting to go clubbing. Which taps into the sense of collective grief that we all shared during COVID, particularly here in Melbourne, for example, world's longest lockdown, etc. It has changed us and has definitely, uh, during the the worst moments of lockdown, there was a real sense of of shared loss and shared grief of I can't do the things I love, whether it's go to the theatre or go clubbing, for example. So being able to tap into that and give people a, a sense of that kind of, yeah, the, the bonds that connect us and that we all grieve in some way. Uh, it's just that grief is very, very personal and very different for everybody simultaneously as being a shared experience. Yeah, and it's nice. It's it, it's been really lovely to because I like I, I did that first lockdown in Melbourne, that world's longest lockdown, and uh, went through that initial all of the roller coaster of emotions and and also had a had a baby during that and and then we left so. Half of the feeling, the initial feeling of grieving that that period, is based in Melbourne for me. So it's really special to come back and 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 uh, yeah, and do it in its home. Kind of, it's half half of its home is here. Yeah. When people walk into the tower, Barney, they'll see you, they'll see a guitar, and they'll see a a kind of brightly lit kind of sign hanging from the roof, which plays an interesting role in the show. I know. It's a nice way to introduce some visual gags to punctuate the work. And again, I don't want to say too much, but kind of all those little different elements I found combined beautifully. Cool. It's, um, yeah, that's that, it's a, it's a slight scrolling LED sign you might find in the, in the window of a store that I, I just thought it'd be cool to have a, to be able to have a voice that, commented on what I was doing at some point so that so that it can um but it, it can do punchlines or else it can do its own little weird gags and it's it's such a kooky sign it's operated from a an android the android cell phone the lighting technician has to have this little there's a, well there's actually my stage manager Chelsea is just like her job is to sit with the phone going next 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 just hitting all there's like 77 different cues and uh, and also yes, I play the bass guitar. I I just uh, that's another thing that I missed 
playing with my band and I went, well, I'll just make a show where I can get to do all the stuff that I miss. My mum clubbing and playing the bass guitar all in one thing. Yeah. And it coheres. Somehow it does. And I didn't even have to like shoehorn parts together when I was making it. It just, honestly, the easiest show I've made, like it just flopped out like a wet salmon and it was just there being funny and uh, it, it doesn't feel like, yeah, it doesn't feel like structurally I'm ha- hammering any points home. I don't know. I had a re- I've got a, f- a drama-making friend in New Zealand called Nisha who gave me this really good advice. She said, at the moment I think audiences don't want shows to present them with an answer at the end, that with it, when a thing is wrapped up for them. They like seeing currently a, a performer asking a question and then not have getting the answer, but just asking that with the audience is a really cool, uh, and that was such a nice, that's how I started going, okay, yeah, is this, I'm grieving, is this okay, this is what I'm doing. The show premiered in New Zealand last year, has it changed significantly in any way since that original season versus its Melbourne season now? Yeah, just... um, I make a sort of comparison between certain structural aspects of classic house tunes and the and the current state of grieving that I'm in without giving too much away. And I want I wasn't even sure if I was going to do the show again, but I thought it would be interesting. I didn't realize how uh, effective and kind of unlocking it would be for some audiences that members that would come up and go. I'm just dealing with something like this or I, I've lost my mum 10 years ago even, but this is a beautiful... It's just... Uh, it, re, it, re, it resounds well. And I thought, well, it could be cool, cool to sort of track how my relationship with grief evolves a year later. And so, yes, I... It, it Obviously, like, grief doesn't go away. You just... Your relationship with it alters. And... um so I, I yeah that I, I I address how that has changed. Um, gags. It's uh, I'm always finding tiny little new bits of stupidity to inject into things. Like there's some great new bits since you've seen it as well. Um, so yeah, I try to keep. That's the nice. It's just that jo- joyous tinkering with the thing. And you also worked with a choreographer on this show. Is that something new? Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I thought, I knew that I was going to make, that it was, you know, really sensitive and I was going to be a a real raw dude in the room. And I thought rather than a, rather than a a director or dramaturg or, you know, an expert, I didn't, I just didn't want an expert in storytelling, really. I wanted the right vibe human to be there with me. And I thought someone who live um, is also a performer and a choreographer and uh, a great dancer, and she's just very, very funny. She's got a great laugh, and I've known her since she was like twelve. And and I, I thought I just need to, I just need yeah. So she, we would start the day by just with the lights off, dancing to some of Dick's music, and then. Um, I was in that kind of exhausted bodily state 
and then she'd leave and I'd go into like, what's on my list of stuff to explore today? Butterflies. All right. And it was just a nice way of, yeah, I just wanted to experiment with, because, you know, I do, my work is quite physical and um, why not use a dancer as the, as the outside eye rather than a... A director or a dramaturg. Yeah, yeah a heady person. Yeah. And it was a cool idea. Bunny is the most formally inventive uh, show I have seen at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival so far this year. I really enjoyed it. I definitely recommend it. As you've heard from Barney Duncan, yes, it's about grief, but it's about nightclubbing. Uh, it's uh, inventive and clever and compelling, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So Bunny is on in the Tower Theatre at the Malthouse, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank, until this Sunday, the 10th of March. You can go to comedyfestival.com.au to book tickets to it. Barney, just before you go, any other kind of friends shows you want to plug, any recommendations? Yes. Because there's so much in the festival. Yes, yes, yes. Um, as I said, Madeline's show before me is very great. Room and K, incredible, but uh, I've got to say there's a, there's a great friend from New Zealand called Morgana O'Reilly who's bringing her show, show Stories About My Body over to the Malt House uh, beginning in the second week of the festival. She's one of my favourite people to watch on stage. She's got so much charm, and um, I, I can't, I can't rec- recommend going to see her. She'd take a punt. like She's never done a comedy festival before. She's a fantastic actress, naturally very funny, and I was the one that actually said, Morgana... Go and do your show at the comedy festival. She went, what? It's not funny. Yes, it is. Ah, okay. So please, otherwise she'll get angry at me. (laughs) (laughs) No one came. So Morgana O'Reilly, also recommended by Barney Duncan, who shows Bunny is on until this Sunday at the Malthouse as part of the comedy festival. www.comedyfestival.com.au for details. Barney, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Time for us to talk some more comedy with a man who uh, has, I don't know, stormed the nation and uh, kind of... (laughs) Uh, kind of very, I think a lot of people very fond of my next guest, uh, Stephen Oliver. Welcome to Triple R. Well, thank you for having me, Richard. So people may know you uh, through television work, for example, but uh, as well as kind of writing and performing in and I believe even uh, pro- helping produce black comedy, for yep. example, the TV series... Cabaret, so you sing, you act. Do you dance as well? Are you a triple threat? I do, actually. Well, it's funny you say that because that's what I was going to be back in my youth. I was going to be a dancer. It was. I was. I someone uh, last year sent uh, sent me a photo of our yearbook from high school, (laughs) and my aspiration uh, after I'd left school was going to be um, to move to Sydney and become a dancer and be known. Well, you've become known. I've become known, yeah. Why shift careers from dance uh, as as an early love to script writing, performing, comedy, cabaret? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've thought about this. I had time to think about it. I was asked to speak at a, um, a teacher's conference once, and I kind of talked about that thing of where growing up, um, I, you know, I was always going to be Stephen Oliver, the dancer. It was always, you know, people complimented me on my dancing and, and all that kind of stuff, but no one really complimented me on my writing. And the only thing I can remember from school from, from a teacher is when we did a history assignment and uh, 
we had to kind of write a story along with it. And I wrote the story and the teacher just said, oh, great imagination. Um, and, you know, it was like, I don't know whether it was because people saw a young black kid and they saw in towns where, you know, somebody could dance. And that was a plausible career was being a writer. You know, the, I didn't really have anyone tell me I could be a writer. Well, I take that back because as I said at the conference, you know, it's like when I was reading books by Audrey Newknuckle, Ina Kath Walker, when I was reading her poetry, I did have someone telling me through the pages that as an Aboriginal person I could be a writer. So I've always written. But, um, you know, but that being said, it wasn't until black comedy came along and I started writing for that. I mean, that first season, out of the six episodes, I wrote about three of those episodes. I wrote like 77 minutes. And even after then, it, it was hard for me to call myself a writer because it was like I had to achieve certain things. And so it was like, you know, once I'd been published and once I had my poetry out there and that kind of stuff, then I kind of felt I could call myself a writer. So, well. In terms of that, I guess, the visibility of Pathways, it's interesting that dance was something that was identified because, yeah, you've got Nisda, you've got Bangara. Um, and I would imagine that for some other Aboriginal kids, it's kind of like football would have been the, oh, yeah, the sport, path yeah, exactly. Well, that's Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, you know, I talk about, like, I think within the AFL, I mean, I don't know if it's the same number, but, like, one in every 11 player is Indigenous. And I thought, imagine if you saw that on TV, if one in every 11 actor was Indigenous. Do you know what I mean? Like, it'd be, it'd be quite a thing to behold. And even when you look at black comedy, you know, I talk about um, the Titters. That was the first gay wedding on Australian television. And that was in 2016. And it was the only second ever uh, First Nations wedding that we saw on Australian TV. And that's in 2016, which is crazy, you know? Yeah. Oh. It's thinking about writing as well then gonna like if one in was it one in 11 one in 11 yeah, yeah. so um, just imagine if one in 11 books in in the australian section of a bookstore was oh. kind of like and we are seeing we are definitely seeing a a, a much needed increase in you know and focus and awareness of the the quality of uh kind of black writing in this country but we've still got a long way to go oh we still do we still do but you know it's it's the good it's a good thing that we're getting there you know what i mean like and that people are becoming aware of that, and you know, it's kind of, you know, one of my favourite sayings is, "We should not be too concerned about how slowly we are moving. It is whether or not we are standing still." Do you know what I mean? Like, I do wish things were happening a little bit faster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do wish that we were going at a faster rate. But as long as we're not standing still, you know, that's that's the, that's the main that's the main thing. Yeah. Well, you're certainly not standing still with your career. <laughs> Try not to. Yeah. I like, I like to. I like to chuck it around a bit. Yeah. So. <laughs> Bigger and Blacker is the show that you're doing as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at the Malt House. Yep. Now, I know it's had earlier iterations. It was up at Le Bois in Brisbane yep. a, a year or so ago as yep. well. Uh, talk to us just a, a little bit about what you wanted to achieve with this show in terms of creating a, a comedy cabaret. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was interesting because it actually started kind of back in 2017. Um, I was writing a web series called A Chance Affair and... At first it was going to be like kind of this, you know, silly kind of Aboriginal gay love story kind of thing. But then it was like, I've already done that with the titters, you know what I mean, on black comedy. So I wanted to do something more grounded. So I started writing, you know, this web series and a mate of mine who was producing it, Marget, he actually came back to me and he's like, you know what, you write songs as well. He goes, you should, you should like chuck a couple of songs in there. And I'm like, really? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you should. Because I mean, songwriting kind of was more of a hobby for me, you know what I mean, rather than me going around performing and making shows out of it kind of stuff. But, you know, Marge had that faith in me, and so I was like, okay, cool. So then I had some songs, and then I wrote some new ones. And um, and then what had happened is that I'd written these songs, and then because I've seen Michael, so Michael Griffiths is my music director, um, who, you know, we've known each other since, like, we were 21 and 22, and we're now, like, 47, 48. 
But um, you know, Mark Gladstein, he's do his show. Um, his shows around the world. You know what I mean? He's taken to the US. I saw him in Edinburgh. You know, whether it's in Brisbane or you know. So I had these songs. So I sent them to him, and I'm like. I said, oh, you know, what do you think of these songs? Like, do you think maybe we could do something? Like, I don't know, maybe make a musical or, you know, do something with it. And and the next thing I know, he'd gotten back to me and he's like, yeah, I've spoken at Adelaide Cabaret Festival. They're interested. So, yeah, we'll put together a show. And I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, you don't muck around. So, put you on the spot. <laughs> so, yeah, it was like that. And then he, he flew up to Brisbane for a week and we went through all my songs and what we thought could work. And then, um, and then I went back down to... Adelaide a couple of months later and then kind of wrote the narrative and, and how the songs would fit into my life and all that kind of stuff. And then we had our world premiere at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in 2019. Yeah. And, you know, ever since then, I mean, you know, there was the pandemic that kind of put a stall on things and some things didn't happen with it, but it, then it came back kind of in a big way when we did it at Le Bois last year. And um, since then, you know, we've taken it to Perth for the International Cabaret Festival. We've done Adelaide Fringe. We've toured Queensland with it. We're going to Canberra after here. We're now at MIF. You know what I mean? Like it's it's yeah, it's quite it's quite phenomenal. In terms of writing songs and and embedding them into a show to to tell a story, because cabaret is is partially about story and partially about intimacy and connection with an audience. Um, you've you've written poetry yep. kind of uh, and quite a lot of poetry. Did. The, the writing of the poetry give you greater confidence with songwriting, for example, knowing that, I don't know, rhythm and metre and structure kind of uh, could, could play a part? Yeah, I mean, well, no, not really. I mean, I guess kind of too because I've always I've always kind of done the things from the same time. Do you know what I mean? I never got into one before the other. Like I've always written songs. I've always written poetry. You know, I've always kind of written it was just me getting to a point where I kind of realised I could make a career out of those things, you know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think the the thing that I was main, you know, and it, it was kind of the first time, like, because I don't really get nervous before I go on stage. I kind of have a moment where I just kind of focus and stuff like that. But there was the one time when we were doing the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and it was when Michael said to me, he goes, you know, we want to showcase you as a songwriter. And then I kind of realised, well, this is the first time people are going to actually hear my songs. So I kind of got a bit nervous then. Because that's when I'd realised no one had, yeah, they, they were seeing me in a completely different light to anything they'd seen me in before. And, you know, and with songwriting, it's kind of hearing my voice within that as well. Um, you know, but thankfully people responded well and, and now we've been asking, if, you know, whether music's available and stuff like that, which, you know, I've got to get my bum into gear and get that done. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, um, you know, it's, it's been lovely. And quite a range of musical styles as well. You've got kind of more traditional cabaret works, but you also rap in the show as well. I do, I do. I even pick up a guitar in one part. Um but, yeah, no, well, I mean, that was, you know, because growing up, you know, in, in Townsville and, and stuff like that with all my mates and then, young, you know, as a young black kid and, and listening to, you know, artists like N.W.A. or, you know what I mean, like all those groups and stuff. And, and so rap did play a, a part of my life growing up. And so, yeah, when I wrote, and it's funny, whenever I write, I usually know within the first line of, of whether it's going to be a poem or whether it's going to be a rap or whether it's going to be a song or, you know, it all comes down to rhythm. It's the rhythm of something and how that rhythm plays out. Um which will then dictate, you know, kind of what it leads to. So when you set out to write something, uh, are you also simultaneously setting out to explore a particular emotion or idea or is it more about kind of knowing the form first? And No, well, I mean, sometimes I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, and I talk about it in the show where I, you know, a lot of the time I have songwriting, something will just pop into my head. And it might just be a tune, you know what I mean? Like, and then I I take this tune and I I hum or, oh, you know, whether it's someone playing chords or whether I just I just something just comes into my head 
for some reason. Um, and then I build up on that. And, you know, I talk about how, like, if I'm sitting with the guitar or if I'm sitting with the piano and I'm, you know, hitting these chords and stuff and then, you know, it'll make me start, like, either humming or doing along. And so then I'll start doing that and it becomes melodic sound. So I take the sound that I hear in my head to then, you know, bring it into the world. And then depending on the mood of the hums or the do-do-do's, they dictate what words I start singing. And so then I I learned the song through that. So I learned the song as it presents itself to me, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, very organic kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What it is, yeah. What about yeah. the if, – if the writing approach then is, is organic, as you've just said, what about the writing of the material that connects the song? So the, the, the more conversational elements of a cabaret show where you're talking directly to the audiences yourself. Is that how, – how, talk to us about that style of writing and, and how different it is from writing for television, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, whether it's kind of writing a song or, or writing a monologue or writing a, a bit of my story or something, like writing's always been a process for me to help me sort through things. So, you know, whether it was like Haiti said or poems like Haiti said or real or stuff like that, when I wrote those, it was stuff that was just kind of going under the world and the way it was affecting me and the way I felt about something and me not necessarily understanding how I felt about it, but I just knew I felt strongly about it. So then writing, you know, as I wrote through it, it helped me to process that. And then by the time I get to the end of the poem or what, you know, that's that's when I finish the song or when I finish the poem is that when I found that resolution within myself of understanding that thing of what I'm trying to write about. Um, you know, so I, I, mean, I guess it's different in that sense for like, because t- TV is such a monster. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, you kind of don't really have that room to breathe or to fully ex- explore. Like you'll you'll get things out quickly and you'll go, oh, yeah, I know that's funny. You might not necessarily know why it's funny, but you know it's funny. You know what I mean? And then you can chuck it out there. Whereas I think when you're writing personally or when you're talking to yourself or when you're, even when you're talking to an audience um, and, you know, having people there respond to you immediately, do you know what I mean? Like that's, um, you know, that in itself is because is, it's that energy you're getting, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a refueling in a way. So what you're giving out, you're instantly getting back from the audience. You know what I mean? So that's the thing that's very different to TV. But um yeah, no, and pe- people have to say, do you, do you have a preference over, you know, one or the other? And, you know, to be honest, I, I don't. I love them for different reasons. You know what I mean? Like, even though I'm, I'm my worst critic and I will sit back and I will watch stuff that I've done for TV and I'm like, oh, why'd I do it like that? Why don't I do it? Oh, I should have done this. I should have said it that way. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I always do that. So, whereas theatre, I find I, do, I don't. I don't often do that. I've done it. I've put it out there. It's happened. Do you know what I mean? So, well. And also the fact with theatre, you get the chance to uh, continually repolish the work, whereas for TV writing, as you say, it's, kinda, it's written, it's filmed, it's done, it's that's, there. It's done, it's solidified, it's, it's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's evidence. Having read some reviews of the show in other cities, people who know you through black comedy, for example, I think the show begins with um, uh, there's an opening number, Fab Original, yep. uh, and uh, What's This Then Slut, which kind of connects to black comedy and yeah, yep. gives people who know you through that world a bit of an introduction and, and, a, and a way into the show. Yeah, yeah. No, well, for sure. And I, I kind of, you know, and I, I do mention like fans of the show in that first instance. And I think it's like some people get surprised sometimes because I think they're going to think the whole show is like that. Um, but, you know, obviously too, because it's talking about, you know, a part of my life or, you know, a portion of my life. Um, you know, life's not doesn't just always laughs. You know, loves. You know, life is like love, pain, hurt, all this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Laughter. Um, and sometimes I'll get slapped after the show where people come up to me and go, "You're meant to make me laugh, not cry," and just, you know, give me a bit of a cheeky slap. Um, but you know, that being said, like I've I've had, and, and I think that's the great thing about the show is that, you know, it, it gives 
kind of everyone a, a point of reference to connect to, like whether it's through black comedy or whether it's through mental health um, or whether it's through homophobia or whether it's through racism or whether, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of things that I talk about where, you know, I've had men come up to me after the show and even like asking for a hug and just saying thank you. And they said, you know, you talking about mental health and in the way you do it, they said, you know, it, 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 they felt it's given them permission to talk about stuff like that. Um, you know, I had a non-binary person come up to me last night who, who thanked me and loved the show and they said, it's you know, it's, they, they're going to be coming out to their parents now and stuff like that. And then, you know, I've had mothers um, when we were doing like the Queensland Regional Tour. You know, we were going to these small country towns and mothers coming up hugging me and saying, thank you, you know, I've got a gay son and it's so hard for him. And so you talking about that, you know what I mean? It's a lovely thing. And then, and then I'll have blackfellas coming up going, you know, thank you for talking about the racism because mum, did you hear that? You know what I mean? So it, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been really special on that kind of front. And it reinforces the the value and the power of live performance, that it connects with an audience in such a different way from a TV show, for example, where people might be tuning in and out, looking at their phone, get up to make a cuppa, come back, kind of in a theatre, watching a cabaret show, kind of there's that instant personal connection. Yeah, well, I think, you know what I mean? Like, and it's even, you know, even if, when I look, if I'm on my phone and what I find the problem with phones today, oh, my God, I sound like an old man, <laughs> a sexy old man, but... um. You know, often, and even if you look at all these political ads, and I'm so tired of these political ads because they're telling you what to think. You know what I mean? Everything tells you what to think. And I often talk about with my show, you know, I don't want, I never want to do that with my work. I never want to be this person who's telling people what to think. I just want people to think. I just want people to watch the show and go, oh, you know, I've never thought about it like that. Or, you know, oh, yeah, that, you know, that gives me food for thought. Or, okay, now I see that. I see why. You know what I mean? So, you know, that, that at the end of the day, yeah, that's um that that's yeah, the one thing I love about live theatre. And then it gives a chance to for people to even to have an interaction afterwards, you know what I mean? Like we have a chat and a you know, hug or that whatever or you know, like I said before, a cheeky slap or <laughs> <laughs> And to Harken back to something we talked about earlier in the show. You were originally thinking about becoming a dancer. You've even worked dance into the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll do a little tap number. <laughs> I used to be a tap teacher, would you believe? I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah so, bit of a I soft shoe shuffle in the show. Childhood dreams are never gone. There's always a way to, to weave them back there's in. There's always a way. Like I said, like I've been, like dance, dance you know, was my first love. Like I, I remember being five years Old and my grandparents waking me up whenever there was like, you know, family barbecues or, you know, there was a bit of a party going on and, and they would come and wake me up and they'd be like, boy, like, come and show this Bob how you dance. And so I'd be out in the backyard in Cloncurry, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what time it was at night, but I'd be in my PJs dancing up on the grass for the, you know what I mean? So dance has always been something that's there. And, um, you know, um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll always... Like I say, I, I call it shaking my cheeks. So the first opportunity to shake my cheeks, I will chuck it in there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Audiences are getting along to see Bigger and Blacker at the Malthouse Theatre have got a lot to anticipate and enjoy. Stephen Oliver's Bigger and Blacker at the Malthouse Theatre, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank, uh, running through until this Sunday, the 10th of April. Tickets via malthousetheatre.com.au. It sounds unmissable. Stephen, thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Thanks for having me, Maddie. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>